Welcome to the show. Let me make a statement that may shock you. That statement is this. Federal firearms laws have no force or effect in the states of the union. Your immediate knee-jerk response may be, that's nuts. Of course they apply in the states. If that's your response, I get it. Not only have you been told your whole adult life that they do have force and effect in the states, you've seen people convicted whose actions took place within a state. I'm going to clear up all of that for you right now and show you precisely why federal firearms laws are constitutionally inapplicable within the states of the union and why now is the exact right time to challenge them. The Dr. Reality Vodcast with Dave Champion. Let's start with this. Many of you know I preach that Americans should learn the truth that Congress has never imposed the income tax on ordinary working Americans. Those who oppose the truth often make snide remarks about people who've been convicted of not paying income tax. Yet not one of the people making a snide remark ever asks why those particular people were prosecuted. Roughly nine months ago, I released a presentation explaining why some, such as Wesley Snipes and Erwin Schiff, get prosecuted, but I don't, even though I haven't filed a return or paid a penny of income tax in 30 years, and have written the nation's best-selling book that educates Americans on the truth that Congress has never imposed the income tax on ordinary working Americans. The reason that some people are prosecuted while others are not is pretty damn important, wouldn't you say? I'll put the link to that presentation in the notes. One of the people often mentioned in those snide comments is Willie Nelson. In the presentation I just mentioned, I point out that Willie believed he owed income tax, but just didn't pay it. How do you defend yourself from an allegation of wrongdoing if you think you really did have an obligation and really did violate the law? Obviously, you can't. Likewise, if a person living within a state of the union is charged with violating a federal firearm statute, believes the statute is constitutional when applied to his actions within a state of the union, why would he think to challenge the statute's jurisdiction? Obviously, he wouldn't. Some of you may be thinking that his attorney would think to challenge the statute's jurisdiction. Sorry, no. The firearms laws we're discussing were first enacted in 1938, 85 years ago as I'm recording this. In that time, thousands of Americans in the states of the Union have been tried and convicted under those laws. So, after 85 years and thousands of successful prosecutions of defendants who committed their alleged illegal act within a state of the Union, what would cause an attorney to consider that the law is inapplicable in a state of the Union? Answer, it would never cross the attorney's mind. Before we jump into discussing why federal firearms laws don't have applicability in the states of the union, let me draw another parallel to the income tax issue. Over the past 30 years, I've spoken to quite a number of criminal defense attorneys and tax attorneys concerning the truth of the income tax. And guess what? Not one of them have been informed about or even had a passing familiarity with the facts I presented to them. But more importantly, in terms of today's discussion, they also had no interest in the discussion. Why? Because there's no money for them in the truth. The vast majority of tax attorneys would need to find a new line of work if the American people knew the truth. Attorneys are very clear about how disadvantageous the truth is for them. Most criminal defense attorneys who handle tax cases specialize in that field. 
What would happen to their income if the truth was recognized and people stopped being prosecuted for income tax crimes? Everyone knows that highly processed foods are a major contributor to the explosion of chronic disease in America, and people die from chronic diseases. Have you ever heard a company that produces processed foods acknowledge its products are killing people? Of course not. Why? Because they want the money, and they don't give a shit if people are dying as a consequence of what they put on the market. Similarly, whether it's income tax law or the limited jurisdiction of federal firearms laws, for attorneys to get on board with the truth means the end of their gravy train. Let me go a step further. Probably almost two decades ago, I wrote a treatise on the limited jurisdiction of federal firearms laws containing much of what you're going to hear today. Over the years, that treatise has been provided to a number of so-called gun rights attorneys. What has been their response? Silence. Has even one of them offered a refutation of the legal facts in the treatise? No. Instead, they remain silent. Now think about this. What would happen to the income of an attorney who specializes in defending people who've been accused of violating gun laws if those gun laws were declared unconstitutional within the states of the Union? Right. That attorney's income would plummet. He'd probably have to find another area in which to specialize. If an attorney has spent years building a practice in a particular specialty, the last thing he wants is to have to start all over. In other words, whether it's criminal defense attorneys specializing in tax law or those specializing in firearms laws, they refuse to even look at what the law really says because the truth is injurious to them. It will cripple their incomes. Understanding that defendants never think to challenge a statute's jurisdictional boundaries and attorneys refuse to even look at the jurisdictional issue. Now, let's get into the law. When considering federal law, one must understand that the federal government has no general authority, as do state governments. The federal government is a government of limited jurisdiction, those limits being circumscribed by the Constitution. A well-settled principle of law concerning the federal government is its jurisdiction falls into just two categories, geographic and subject matter. Congress's geographic subject matter is limited to places over which Congress has exclusive legislative jurisdiction, which does not include the states of the Union. Let's take a look at the constitutional provision that grants Congress that authority. That's found in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17, and reads, quote, to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district, not exceeding 10 miles square, as may by session of particular states and the acceptance of Congress become the seat of government of the United States and to exercise like authority over all places purchased by the consent of the legislature of the state in which the same shall be for the erection of forts, magazines, arsenals, dockyards, and other needful buildings, and to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by the Constitution and the government of the United States or in any department or office thereof. Close quote. According to the U.S. Supreme Court, what that provision means is that Congress has what is called municipal authority in Washington, D.C., U.S. possessions and territories, and in places upon land a state of the union has turned over to the federal government. Municipal authority means the authority to create laws of general applicability, such as laws against murder, robbery, rape, battery, fraud, etc. The federal government does not have municipal authority within the states of the union. 
When a state gives part of its land to the federal government, it's called seeding. In order for a state to constitutionally cede land to the federal government, the state legislature must vote to cede a specific area of land to the federal government, and Congress must vote to accept it. Both steps are constitutionally required. Once both steps occur, that area of land within the state ceases to be a part of the state. It becomes part of the geographic federal government. When the Constitution says, quote, and to exercise like authority over all places purchased by the consent of the legislature of the states, close quote, it is referring to those places within the states that are no longer constitutionally part of a state. Let's quickly examine a Supreme Court decision that will validate for you that Congress has no lawmaking authority in the states of the Union. In Pollard v. Hagan, the Supreme Court addressed the limits of federal lawmaking within a state. Here's what the court said. Quote, the United States, that by the way means Congress, never held any municipal sovereignty, jurisdiction, or right of soil in and to the territory of which Alabama or any of the new states were formed because the United States has no constitutional capacity to exercise municipal jurisdiction, sovereignty, or eminent domain within the limits of a state or elsewhere except in the cases in which it is expressly granted, close quote. Expressly granted means by the Constitution. The second area of jurisdiction for the federal government is subject matter jurisdiction. This jurisdiction arises from the Constitution stating specific authorities the states gave the federal government when the states created Congress. Most of those authorities are found in Article I, Section 8, Examples of subject matter jurisdiction are the Constitution authorizing Congress to establish a post office, to provide and maintain a navy, and to establish uniform laws for bankruptcy. Because those authorities are based on subject matter rather than geography, the government has jurisdiction for those matters not only in its own geographic territory, but also in every state of the Union. To summarize, Congress has only two forms of jurisdiction. It's geographic jurisdiction, which does not extend into the states, and it's subject matter jurisdiction, which does. With that under our belts, let's get on with the firearms laws the U.S. government wants you to believe apply within the states. The bulk of the federal firearms laws that concern Americans who support the right to keep and bear arms are found in Title 18, Chapter 44, entitled succinctly, Firearms. Chapter 44 is essentially the Federal Firearms Act of 1938, significantly amended over the years, most notably by the Gun Control Act of 1968. Before we jump into Chapter 44 in earnest, let's go up to the 35,000-foot level and acknowledge that the Constitution does not grant the federal government any authority over firearms ownership, firearm sales, or firearms manufacturing within the Union States. If you've not already done so, I encourage you to read the Constitution front to back every word you won't find a single word about Congress having jurisdiction over firearms. We know Congress can't make laws for those of us living in the states of the Union, and the Constitution doesn't provide Congress with any subject matter authority concerning firearms. So then, in the absence of geographic authority, and no mention of arms in the enumerated subject matter authorities, where would Congress get authority over firearms within the states of the Union? As you're about to see, Congress shoehorned its control of firearms into its subject matter jurisdiction over goods moving in interstate commerce. Let's quickly consider four aspects of Congress's interstate commerce authority. 
First, the founders never intended it to be used as it has been during the 20th and 21st centuries. In terms of commerce among the states, the founders merely intended to give Congress the authority to prevent one state from erecting physical and or financial barriers against goods produced in other states. A modern way to phrase it is that Congress was given interstate commerce authority to assure all the states of the Union remained a free trade zone. Second, there is a definition of interstate commerce in Title 18 that applies to the entire title, except Chapter 44. Isn't that odd? Third, the original Act of 1938 had a definition of interstate commerce that didn't define interstate commerce accurately, and that was not a mistake. Fourth, the Gun Control Act of 1968 repealed the Federal Firearms Act of 1938 while reenacting many of its provisions including a new definition of interstate commerce. To do a quick recap, Chapter 44 relies for its authority entirely on Congress's interstate commerce jurisdiction. The 1938 Act had a bizarrely inaccurate definition of interstate commerce. The 1968 Act completely changed that definition, yet the authors of both acts felt the definition provided for the entire rush of Title 18 could not be used for Chapter 44. So, in summary, one definition of interstate commerce is good enough for all of Title 18, but both pieces of legislation that wound up in Chapter 44 had to craft their own special definitions. Are you smelling a rat? The definition that applies to all of Title 18, except Chapter 44, is at Section 10 and reads, quote, The term interstate commerce as used in this title includes commerce between one state territory, possession, or the District of Columbia, and another state, territory, possession, or the District of Columbia. Close quote. Just a quick note, in this presentation, I have excluded any mention of Congress's authority over foreign commerce because it's irrelevant to today's discussion. The definition of interstate commerce for the entirety of Title 18, except Chapter 44, is 100% straightforward and comports itself with the power granted to Congress by the Constitution. Now, let's compare that straightforward definition with the special definitions provided in 1938 and 1968. The definition of interstate commerce in the 38 Act reads as follows, quote, the term interstate or foreign commerce means commerce between any state, territory, or possession and any place outside thereof, or between points within the same state, territory, or possession, or the District of Columbia, but through any place outside thereof, or within any territory or possession, or the District of Columbia, close quote. This brings us to the matter of how federal statutes use the word state. I think it's fair to say Americans believe that when congressional legislation uses the word state, it means the states of the union. And sometimes it does. Most of the time, it doesn't. Anyone who's read my book, Income Tax Shattering the Mist, is aware that Congress takes words of which we all know the meaning in plain English and redefines those words to mean whatever Congress wants them to mean. As an example from the tax code, the word employee, concerning which we all know the ordinary meaning, has seven different definitions in various parts of the code. In the most egregious case of redefining employee, virtually everyone believes payroll withholding is to be affected upon employees, yet no one is aware that Congress altered the meaning of that word, so the definition does not include Americans earning their own domestic income in the private sector. Nevertheless, because it says withholding is to be affected upon employees, 
And no one bothers to study or read law. Nearly the entire U.S. population thinks they know what employee means concerning payroll withholding, the exception being those who've read income tax shattering the myths. Defining words for the purpose of one part of the law and then redefining the same word differently in various other parts of the law borders on fraud in my view, but the Supreme Court has said it's a completely acceptable practice. Years ago, I looked up the word resident in the law book entitled Words and Phrases and found that resident has something like 46 distinct meanings in law. The point here is that the surest way to misunderstand law, especially federal law, is to assume words mean what they mean in the English dictionary. State is a perfect example of that. With rare exception, state does not mean the 50 states. It means federal states, not states of the union. What are federal states, you ask? Federal states are jurisdictions that engage in local self-governance but are under the exclusive legislative jurisdiction of Congress. Examples of those federal states are Guam, Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, American Samoa, and the Northern Mariana Islands. Let's quickly look at some statutes in which Congress has distinguished between the different meanings of state. In 26 U.S.C. 3121E1, dealing with FICA, that most Americans incorrectly believe is Social Security tax, the definition reads as follows. The term state includes the District of Columbia, the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, Guam, and American Samoa. Then, in Title 26, 6103B5AI, addressing disclosure of information contained in tax returns, the definition of state reads, the term state means any of the 50 states the District of Columbia, the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, and so on. You'll notice that when Congress wants the meaning of state to include the states of the Union, Congress makes that clear. When Congress does not make that intention clear, state means only federal states. Because federal states are Congress's default geographic jurisdiction, Congress must clearly indicate in a statute when its intention is to include the 50 states. Now, Let's look at the 1968 definition of interstate commerce that replaced the 39 definition. I should mention that the 68 definition is currently operative in Chapter 44. That definition is found at 18 U.S.C. 921A2 and read, quote, The term interstate or foreign commerce includes commerce between any place in a state and any place outside that state or within any possession of the United States or the District of Columbia, but such term does not include commerce between places within the same state, but through any place outside of that state. The term state includes the District of Columbia, the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, and the possessions of the United States. Close quote. I presume you caught that definition of state. Clearly, there was zero intent expressed by Congress that state is any location other than those over which Congress has exclusive legislative jurisdiction. I want to draw your attention to a particular distinction between the 39 definition and the 68 definition. The 39 definition began with these words. The term interstate or foreign commerce means, while the 68 version began with the term interstate or foreign commerce includes. Is there a difference between means and includes? Of course there is. When a statutory definition uses means, it signifies that what follows the word means is the totality of the meaning. The meaning is fixed by what is listed in the statute. 
includes is different. When includes is used, it means certain things that do not appear in the definition can still be part of the definition. Let me explain how includes works in a statute. Whatever items appear after the word includes create a class or category, and things that can reasonably fit into that class are considered part of the definition despite not appearing there. Understanding how includes operates, let's take another look at the 68 definition and read the definition of state again. Quote, the term state includes the District of Columbia, the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, and the possessions of the United States. Close quote. What is the class established by the listed items? If you said places over which Congress has exclusive legislative jurisdiction, you nailed it. Accordingly, what locations can be considered a part of the definition, though not enumerated? How about American Samoa? Yep. Northern Mariana Islands? Of course. But let's move a little bit closer to home. Remember earlier we discussed places within a state of the union that have been ceded to the U.S. government and are therefore no longer part of a state, even though the place is located within a state. Is Congress's exclusive legislative jurisdiction operative there? Of course. Those places are essentially a little piece of Washington, D.C. located within a state of the union. Let's revisit Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17 again, just to be sure. Quote, to exercise exclusive legislative jurisdiction over all cases whatsoever over such district, not exceeding 10 miles square, as may, by secession of particular states and the acceptance of Congress become the seat of government of the United States. And here we go. To exercise like authority over all places purchased by the consent of the legislature of the state. There you have it. Federal places within a state of the union are within Congress's exclusive legislative jurisdiction. Are you beginning to understand that the phrase any place within a state, as used in the Chapter 44 definition of interstate and foreign commerce, has nothing to do with land under the jurisdiction of a state of the union? Now, let's revisit the appearance of the word places in the 1968 definition of interstate commerce. Quote, the term interstate or foreign commerce includes commerce between any place in a state and any place outside of that state or within any possession of the United States or the District of Columbia, but such term does not include commerce between places within the same state through any place outside of that state. Close quote. Well, I'm not going to get into it today because it would make an already long presentation even longer. The language you just heard was used in the definition as a pre-planned backup argument to make in court if the act is challenged because the authors of the Gun Control Act of 1968 knew Congress has no authority over firearms in the states of the Union. All they were trying to do with that language is preserve a superficial appearance of constitutional compliance. Let me add that since the word place used in the definition of interstate commerce is not congressionally defined for Chapter 44, we have to use the normal dictionary definition. And in Webster's New International Dictionary, second edition, place is defined as, quote, a portion of space set aside for a special purpose, which of course perfectly describes the places ceded to the United States by a state. I want to take a quick moment to encourage you to subscribe to the channel or page and hit the like button. By doing so, you tell the algorithms to show this content to more people. Thank you for taking that very simple step to get more people informed. At this point, 
let me make a declaratory statement. By the inclusion of the interstate commerce in the Constitution, the Founding Fathers did not grant Congress the authority to criminalize objects over which Congress was not otherwise granted authority in the Constitution. In light of the Second Amendment, as you might imagine, the founders would never have given the federal government the authority to regulate firearms, including firearms moving in interstate commerce. I point that out because our current Supreme Court is the perfect Supreme Court to hear a challenge to the firearms laws contained in Chapter 44 using the constitutional and statutory realities you just heard. But to be clear, I only mean that Chapter 44 should be challenged in terms of its being misapplied within the states of the Union. This is a concept in law referred to as, quote, unconstitutional as applied. What that means is the statutes in Chapter 44 are unconstitutional if applied, as an example, to me, a citizen of Nevada, but would not be unconstitutional if applied to a citizen or a resident of any place Congress exercises exclusive legislative jurisdiction. I've spoken here before about the significance of the court's Bruin decision and the Bruin test that decision created. I'll put a link to that video in the notes. I believe the facts you've learned today would result in the current Supreme Court striking down Chapter 44's applicability within the states of the Union, even without Bruin. But when we place the facts you learned today within the context of the Bruin test, I see zero chance Chapter 44 would survive a constitutional challenge. If there is ever a time to challenge the laws in Chapter 44, this is it. I've mentioned the truth of the income tax a couple of times and offered definitions from the tax code as examples of how Congress writes statutes that apply only to federal states and how it writes statutes it intends to apply to the 50 states. The statutes in Chapter 44 and the income tax are extremely similar in that Congress passed schemes that are 100% constitutional and then turned around and engaged in massive propaganda and disinformation to convince the American people they operate against those who are, in fact, outside Congress's jurisdiction. Chapter 44 and the income tax are dissimilar in that Congress does have subject matter authority to impose taxes. That said, Congress has no more authority to tax your labor or the fruits thereof than it does to tax your right to vote, your right to speak your mind, freely assemble, or worship. You have a right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures, right? Would anyone in their right mind imagine Congress could impose an annual tax on you to possess that right? Since we know Congress is incredibly greedy, why have we never seen such a tax? The answer is the Supreme Court has repeatedly held that unalienable rights cannot be taxed. The Supreme Court has also repeatedly held your right to exchange your labor for compensation is an unalienable right. In McCullough v. Maryland, the court enunciated the universal truth that, quote, the power to tax is the power to destroy. In other words, if Congress had the authority to tax your labor, Congress would have the authority to destroy your ability to survive. As Justice Story said in his famous commentaries on the Constitution, quote, what is personal liberty if it does not draw after it the right to enjoy the fruits of your own industry? What is political liberty if it imparts only perpetual poverty to us and all our posterity? Close quote. The reason I share all of that with you is the Supreme Court has held that the income tax is a tax upon the exercise of a government-granted privilege. And, of course, a privilege is the exact opposite of a right. Since you employing your labor to your own benefit is a right, and contracting with others to be compensated for your labor is a right, and receiving compensation for your labor is also a right, 
Why do you believe a tax the Supreme Court has said only applies to income from a government-granted privilege applies to you? The seminal difference between Chapter 44 and the income tax issue is while the jurisdictional issue concerning Chapter 44 we've discussed today has never been ruled on by the Supreme Court, that Congress has never imposed the income tax on ordinary working Americans has been very clearly decided by the Supreme Court in a series of holdings. Not only that, but internal IRS documents the service thought would never get out to the public, but I got my hands on them, confirm that the IRS knows and has always known the income tax has not been imposed on ordinary working Americans. We've talked a bit about the definition game statutory draftsmen play, so laws can be enacted that are technically constitutional because of their limited jurisdiction, while politicians and the executive branch that does the enforcement fool the American people into believing the law applies to them. That definition game is the primary tool used in the tax code to bamboozle the American public. I mentioned earlier that employee, as defined for payroll withholding, does not include American citizens working in the private sector. That legal reality is explained with crystal clarity in income tax shattering the myths. Another example that applies to those who work for themselves is Form W-9. The regulations say Form W-9 is only to be used by a U.S. person. Remember when I said earlier that the best way to misunderstand federal law is to read it as if the words mean what you think they mean because you're applying the dictionary definition? U.S. person is a perfect example. I imagine pretty much every American would consider him or herself a U.S. person. Hell, I bet some people read U.S. person in the W-9 instructions and probably think, hell yeah, that's me, I'm a U.S. person. That guy or gal would probably be surprised and I hope angry, to learn that the legal term U.S. person was introduced into the tax code in 1962, and in the 61 years since its introduction, it only appears in the context of U.S. citizens or domestic corporations that receive U.S. source income belonging to a foreign person. In the 61 years since its introduction into the code, there is not a single instance where U.S. person has been used in any other context. Not one in 61 years. If you've been signing and handing out W-9s for years, how does it make you feel to know that the true purpose of a W-9 is to declare the payments you're receiving don't belong to you, but are paid to you on behalf of a foreign owner? I might further ask how it makes you feel that the government knows exactly what you're certifying under penalty of perjury when you sign a W-9 and has been knowingly, willfully, and intentionally concealing it from you for decades so they can manipulate you into paying a tax that doesn't apply to you. I might add that regulations define a W-9 as a withholding certificate that can only be submitted to a withholding agent. And guess what the definition is of withholding agent? It's a person who withholds U.S. income tax from U.S. source income before paying over the balance to its foreign owner. Then we have the fact that the Secretary of the Treasury has issued nine Treasury decisions stating who is to file a Form 1040. All nine of them say a non-resident alien or his U.S. agent is to file a 1040 on the non-resident alien's U.S. source income. At this point, you may be wondering how many Treasury decisions instruct anyone other than a non-resident alien or his U.S. agent to file a 1040. That would be Zero. The Secretary of the Treasury is the nation's top official concerning the income tax, and he has never stated that ordinary working Americans are to file a 1040. 
but has said in nine different official documents that the 1040 is to be used by non-resident aliens or or the non-resident aliens U.S. agent. Why do you think the Secretary of the Treasury has never directed ordinary working Americans to file a 1040? The answer is because he can't. He can't because Congress has never imposed the income tax on you. The only reason you think the income tax applies to you is because someone told you it does. But you never actually looked to see if that was true. You just went along with the narrative. After 2020, 2021, and 2022, haven't you had enough of just going along with false narratives? Fortunately, the mountain of facts and evidence that fully educate you and allow you to decide whether you want to safely walk away from the income tax scam are laid out for you in income tax shattering the myths in a way every single American can understand. When I say income tax shattering the myths, well, fully educate you. I don't want you to see that as something arduous. It's not. Some people have read Income Tax Shattering the Mist four or five times, not because they had to, but because they want to, because it's that enjoyable. Because of how Income Tax Shattering the Mist is written, a book that destroys the government's false income tax narrative is also a joy to read. You can get 15% off the price of Income Tax Shattering the Mist, Stay with me for just a moment, and I'll tell you how to do that. I also want to encourage you to have a look at body science. Body science reveals the establishment's lies and deceits that has led to the United States being the most diseased society in all of human history. As you hear my voice today, America is the most ill society in history and getting sicker every day. And America being the most ill society in history is not happenstance. It was is, and continues to be by design so trillion-dollar industries can keep the money rolling in. Body Science is essentially a physiology book that presents the truth about human physiology in a way everyone can understand. But because the truth is so different from the widely accepted false narratives, in Body Science, I had to deal the corruption and industry payoffs so readers understand how we got here so they realize it isn't happenstance. Once readers understand how egregiously they've been lied to by the establishment, then they have a thirst to know the truth the lies have been concealing. And Body Science lays that out for you like no other book in the world. Not only is the truth going to blow your mind, but the best part is, once you know the truth, if you act on it, you will become one of the healthiest people in the country. Imagine being phenomenally healthy in a nation of diseased people. Obviously, I'd like to see everyone get healthy, but that's not going to happen because most people reject truth, even if rejecting it kills them, literally kills them. I can't change human nature, but I can give people who seek the truth the keys to becoming the healthiest people on the planet. Right now, for a limited time, income tax shattering the myths is on sale. Here's how it works. You can save 15% buying income tax shattering the miss alone, or you can get 15% off income tax shattering the miss and free shipping on your order by purchasing body science and income tax shattering the miss together. To get 15% off income tax shattering the miss when purchasing it alone, use the coupon code OWNIT. I'll put the link and the code in the notes. To get 15% off income tax shattering the miss 
and free shipping on your order by purchasing the bundle, including both body science and income tax shattering emiss, use the coupon code FREEBIE. I'll put the link to that bundle in the notes along with the code. Also, purchasing income tax shattering the mist and or body science supports me being here for you with these thought-provoking presentations. I hope you'll share this vodcast everywhere. Thank you for being here. Take care.